This episode is brought to you by Quarter. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world straight to your pocket for free. Their main mission is to create a completely new bridge between companies and shareholders and really to reinvent investor relations as we know it. You can try out Quarter today by typing in Q-U-A-R-T-R in your app store of choice. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R or simply click the link in the show notes. And there's five key points to remember about Quarter. One, Quarter is completely free. Two, they include companies from over 16 markets today and plan to add more over time. Three, they easily allow new companies on their platform by simply requesting the ticker of the company and they'll get back to you instantly. Four, users can now leave reactions while listening to calls to make their voices heard. And five, again, it's free and I only back products that I believe in and products that I use every single day. Quarter is an everyday part of my process and I wouldn't live without it. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R. Try it out today. I'm also excited to announce our newest sponsor, Tegas. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available interviews on all the public and private companies you care about. All you have to do is log in and type in a stock ticker or a keyword. For example, if you're interested in gaming stocks, you can type in RBLX for Roblox, or type in the keyword metaverse and instantly read hundreds of calls on the company and industry. Tegas actually makes primary research fun and effortless too. Instead of weeks and months, you can learn a new industry or company in hours, and all from those that know it best. Now, I only sponsor products that I use every day, and Tegas is no exception. Since joining, I spend nearly all my time reading Tegas calls on existing companies and new ideas into my portfolio, and I know you will too. So if you're interested, head on over to tegas.co forward slash value hive for a free trial to see for yourself. Again, that's tegas.co forward slash value hive. Before we dive into today's conversation, I want to talk to you about MIT Investment Management Company, also known as Matimco, the investment office of MIT. Each year, Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of MIT's mission. In order to help the emerging manager community more broadly, they created emergingmanagers.org, a website for emerging manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful emerging managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimco has written for emerging stock pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit matimco.org slash global dash investor. That's M-I-T-I-M-C-O dot O-R-G slash global dash investor. The Matimco team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments, working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of MIT innovators. This week, I have Lucas Tomaki of LRT Capital. Lucas is the portfolio manager over at LRT. Um, LRT is a long, short, fundamental-based um, investment fund, and they're based out of the beautiful Austin, Texas, which happens to be the headquarters of Macarops. Uh, Lucas and I are going to dive deep into a lot of different areas. We're going to touch on, obviously, the Russian-Ukraine situation, um, which Lucas has kind of some interesting thoughts as, as, as he um, he's originally from Poland. And then after that, we're going to dive into Lucas's unique technology background before, uh, before he became an investor. And then we'll use that to springboard into LRT's unique systematic portfolio construction 
uh, system, as well as just beautiful stock ideas, including Watsco, Tractor Supply, and Hexel. Uh, this is going to be a really fun conversation. And I think um, anybody from a systematic investor to a compounder investor to just someone looking to learn more about businesses is going to learn a lot from. So Lucas, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Brandon. So let's start again, you know, kind of the giant, or the, the, the giant elephant in the room here is this, this Russia-Ukraine situation. And I think it's kind of a great time to maybe weave in your background, um, you know, your time in Poland and, and, and kind of your thoughts on the situation um, as, as you see it. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, as you alluded to, I was born in Poland. I was born in Warsaw, Poland uh, in 87. So right, right before communism fell. You might say I was actually born in a communist country. And I, I grew up in Poland and the UK and Hungary and then many years in the US. And I lived in Hong Kong for nearly seven years as well. And then I came back to the States and I live in Austin now for close to five years now. Um, but you know, I, I do come from Eastern Europe and I'm sort of familiar with the history there. Um, and I so you know I have sort of thoughts about how you want to respond to these kind of threats that are maybe different than, than uh, the American perspective. Yeah. So let's, let's, I mean, let's go into that, right? Because I, I don't really know. Um, I mean, on, on, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to disseminate all this information as best I can from, you know, whether it's Intel from Twitter, but there's, there, there's so much propaganda that it's, that it's kind of hard to just kind of make out um, what's, what's truly going on. So what, how, how, how are you interpreting the situation and how might that be different from say someone like myself who was born in America, doesn't necessarily have that Eastern European background? Well, I, I think, you know, that the first question that always comes up with anyone from the States is why is this an American problem? And what, why do we care? Why do we, why, why do we want to get involved in European wars? And I think, you know, that's, Unfortunately, the last two wars has always been proven that America being a global power has global interests and it's mm -hmm. very hard, if not impossible, to stay out of you know, European affairs. Um, and you know, after World War II, it's been a long-standing policy of the United States to, to maintain stability and peace in the European continent. Um, and you know, what, what we have right now is, is undermining that. And I think Putin quite successfully and correctly senses that, you know, there's not a will uh, to fight for, for, for most people, you know, and, and so kind of the rules of the playground, if you will apply, you know, you have to stand up to bullies and if, and if you cower in fear, um, you know, at every threat, then you might as well just disarm yourself. You know, if, if, if the other guy says, we're gonna use nuclear weapons and, and you, 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 you shit yourself in fear, based on that, yeah. again, you might as well just give up right now because mm -hmm. um, that threat is going to come up over and over again. Um, you know, and it's a threat that the U.S. has lived with during the Cold War and successfully you know, prosecuted the Cold War and won the Cold War without having a nuclear incident. But it was willing to go you know, toe to toe with the Soviets um, right. in nuclear arsenal and positioning troops and espionage, et cetera. And I, I think that, that has been forgotten, that you have to be willing to, to stand up and you know, show force and, and, and be not, not just talk strong, but actually you know, be strong. Mm -hmm. And one of, the, one of the fascinating aspects of this whole thing, and again, this is coming from the chauffeur's knowledge that I have bringing, bringing into the situation, but 
um, apparently Ukraine tried to become a NATO country, I guess, uh, I guess a few years ago. And, and I don't know if they were, you know, denied or basically said, Hey, not right now, but that's just kind of an interesting little tidbit where, man, if that thing would have went a different way and Ukraine was allowed to become a NATO state, then we, we, we would already have a full blown NATO retaliation at this point. Well, I, I think what, what you're suggesting is maybe more complicated than that, because if, if, Ukraine was a member of NATO, then maybe we, we wouldn't have a war in the first place. That's a good point. Right? So it's it's yep. the threat of war that keeps you out of war. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so again, during the Cold War, it was the threat of mutually assured destruction that kept people from actually launching nuclear weapons. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not familiar with every political turn in Ukraine. Ukraine has long been kind of torn between being pro-Russia versus pro-West. Mm-hmm. Um, and roughly a decade ago, you know, those kind of aspirations have really turned towards the West, uh, towards wanting to have a be, be not really, in, well, they would like to be in the European Union, but that was seen as too far. Mm-hmm. They, they were suggesting being a trading pact with the EU, some kind of, you know, trading zone, etc. Um, as opposed to being in a trading, you know, group with, with the Russians. Um, and that came to a head you know, in 2014. Um, but in general, closer alignment with the West is something they've, they've been seeking. Um, but again, there, there are people with, within Ukraine who always thought that would be too provocative and it would be leading to what we have today. So it's, it's, it's not like you can just admit someone to NATO and say tomorrow, you know, hey, you're NATO. Yeah. Um, it, it's a process, um, you know, and, and they, they've, they would like to move in that direction and the, the war that we're witnessing now, I think, is largely a result of, you know, Russia and Putin trying to deny them that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, it's it's going to be it's going to be wild to see how this unfolds. Um, I think if you if you kind of game theorize this out, uh, I don't know how rational Putin will be. And there's 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 it, you know there's rumors that he's got you know some some types of illnesses. He's 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 pushing seventy, and maybe he just doesn't care at this point. Um, and so, and right. so it's kind of, it's kind of hard to play that rational game with somebody that's on irrational principles from a, from a baseline. I mean, I, I look, I, I think he's been fairly rational so far. Um, I just think there's been, you know, several billion dollars now of aid promised to the Ukrainians. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and, you know, think about where it's going to come from. I mean, it's f- physically, it's going to be moved through, you know, the territory of Poland. Yeah. Um, and Poland and the Czech Republic, maybe. And so, you know, you're going to have flights or convoys of supplies. And if those supplies are full of weapons, they're going to kill Russians and destroy Russian you know, military assets. You would expect they're going to retaliate against those convoys. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it, it can very quickly spiral to, to some kind of escalation. There, there was talk yesterday that the Ukrainians would be allowed to operate out of airfields based in Poland. So again, imagine, you know, they'd be flying bombing missions, bombing Russia and their troops, and then landing in Poland. And what happens if a Russian jet chases them over Polish territory? Yeah. You know, you, you, you don't need much to see where this goes. Yep. And then Putin says, well, I, I can't allow this. I have to secure that territory too. Yeah. And he moves in and he says, well, if you retaliate, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to strike back with nuclear weapons. 
what is the answer? I mean, so that that's that's unfortunately where we are. Yeah, it's. A, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's just this nasty chain reaction that you could see unfolding, where every you know it's tit for tat and and uh, you know, just you know thoughts you know prayers go out to the Ukrainian people. And it's amazing the way they're the way they're holding up so far. Um, but yeah. so you you were you were born in Poland and. Before you were actually an investor, you founded a company and you co-founded and sold a technology company, uh, which is, you know, again, not the normal path for a lot of professional hedge fund managers where you go to, you know, some Wharton school, get your investment banking, two years at Goldman, and then, you know, kind of trail off into the sunset, starting your own long short fund. What, what was your background before that? So what was, what was the company you founded and kind of why did you uh, found, found the company in the first place? Yeah, um, you know, I have actually no background in technology per se. I I went to school and I studied finance, uh, but I'm a taught you know software person. Um, you know, I I wrote software as as a teenager. Um, back in Poland, I built like e-commerce software in the early two thousands, and you know, there was no Shopify back then. Um, so everything was kind of a custom job, but I did things of that nature. Um, and I came to the U S during high school and, and, you know, one thing led to another and I met, um, a guy I ended up co-founding a company with, and he just came to me and said, well, I know these lobbyists, they, they, they're trying to track legislation. There's one way they're doing it, but it kind of sucks. And maybe we can do something better for them. And I looked at it and I said, yeah, well, maybe we can do something better. And that, that kind of one thing led to another. Got it. And was this kind of the normal course for what, you know, maybe you or your friends were doing at the time, right? Or, 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 or was it something where you're like, hey, I'm going to go off and kind of, you know, write this code, found this company. And your friends are like, well, hey, like you majored in finance. Like, why don't you just do something in finance? I mean, I, I, this wasn't, this was, you know, this, I mean, I'm in high school when this is happening. So this is, yeah. we're not even like talking about finance. Um, no, so I, I, I had the, I had a perfect ACT score um, and I had a pr pretty good SAT as well. So I, was, I had some full scholarship offers to go to college, um, but I was focused on the company and we started in, in Missouri because that's where I was living. And we scaled that to 50 state coverage in, in wow. several years. And then we built in both legislative and campaign finance tracking at the state level. Um, but while I was doing that, I, I said, well, maybe I should go to college. Maybe not, not such a bad idea, especially on a full scholarship. And so I ended up going to school at Seton Hall University in South Orange, New Jersey. And mm -hmm. I was there from 2007 to 2009, uh, which means they were, they were very gracious to me in that they both paid for it. And they let me graduate in just two years from what is normally you know, a, a four-year degree program. Um, but also I was kind of in the New York area um, during, you know, the financial crisis. And so I think that was a very educational experience in itself, um, seeing how people's assumptions about the world and how it works, you know, really were not very deeply tested and were not really very thought out. Hmm. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, I'll tell you an anecdote. I was bizarrely in Vikram Pandit's office in very early January, 2009. Um, and, you know, I, I said to him, do you need any more money from TARP? And he's like, 
no, we have all the capital we need. This is a great business. It's a great franchise, da, 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 da. The stock was at, I, you know, $4. And I think three days later, they took another 20 billion in TARP. The stock fell at 50%. So um, th this is my, my lesson for, for, you know, listening to top management, right? Yeah. Well, it's like, it's like Peloton saying, hey, we're not going to need to raise capital. And then it's like, what, two weeks later, they're like, hey, just kidding. We're going to raise capital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I, I certainly don't have any insight into talking to management. Some people claim they do. I, I certainly don't. At what point did you start getting the investing bug? Uh, was it, you know, was it as you, as you kind of transitioned and sold the company and we're, and we're kind of looking for things to do? Like walk us, walk us through that. Um, yeah, I, no, that was much earlier. I mean, probably in early high school, I, I read, um, there, there used to be a newspaper, maybe still, still is called Investors Business Daily. And there, the yeah. guy who started it had a book called Can Slim, which was like an acronym for things that he was looking for. I remember reading that. I read some early morning stuff, morning star publications. You know, I, I read Buffett and, and um, kind of spiraled from there. And I was always interested in, in sort of business in some way. Um, you know, again, not, not particularly professional background, you know, at 15 when I was doing stuff, but um, it, it, was, it was a nice training ground for learning things. So walk us through then that early evolution as an investor, right? So, you know, we know, and we're going to, we're going to dive into your process today as it, as it stands at LRT. Um, but how did you kind of evolve that process and really germinate um, that investing knowledge to get to where you yeah. are today? Sure. I mean, look, I, I think just kind of stepping back for a second, as I was mentioning, you know, we were, I was in college, um, graduated from college, moved back to St. Louis, sold the company after we had that 50 state coverage. Um, and then I had a bit of money and a bit of freedom. Um, and for me, you know, one of the big things I learned from running a business, which I think is useful as an investor is understanding, you know, that businesses, business on the inside looks very different than the way it's presented on a podcast, right? Mm -hmm. And you, you go on a podcast and you listen to, uh, you know, the guy from Peloton, his name escapes me now. You know, you, you ma it, he makes it sound like there was like a clearly charted course in which they gracefully you know, and majestically proceeded from founding the company to multi-billion dollar success. Right. And anyone who's been in a startup been in a company knows there's like, a million pivots. It's like white water rafting. Uh, you know, things are constantly changing. What you thought your business is today may be completely different tomorrow. Um, you know, I think one of the only honest stories I find is the, the Airbnb guys who tell you how they sold Captain Crunch cereal boxes to found the company. I mean, there's a lot of that going on. Um, so that's, I think, lesson number one. Number two, I would say things take a lot longer in real business than in the stock market. In the stock market, we sort of try to discount everything till the present. And in reality, things take longer. Both success takes a lot longer. And I would say failure also takes a lot longer. Hmm. Um, so what I mean by that is, you know, the collapse of Carvana is ongoing and it's been in the works for a long time. And it's still, you know, still a multi-billion dollar company. And it's, the collapse of Peloton has been ongoing as well. I mean, it's taken a long, long time, even though they were never really profitable. 
and everyone told you they're not profitable and there's no way for them to achieve profitability and it just like you know it can sustain itself on fumes if you will for a very long time and I, I can certainly give you some other businesses which you know have a similar trajectory we work right sam zell talked about we work being a failed you know terrible business model makes no sense mm-hmm. i looked at we work never made any sense to me and yet people kept raising more and more money for it and it just kept like growing globally right and so those are kind of things that um you realize just because it is kind of ongoing doesn't mean it can't can't fail and and so you have to kind of look at first first principles that's interesting because one 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 question i have you have this unique background as you know founding this technology startup company and one of the important distinctions that an investor kind of has to suss out is like let's take a earlier stage startup business um, you know, like on, on the income statement and on the cash flow, like it might look like they're, you know, they're burning a lot of cash, they're losing tons of money. But if you can, you know, kind of dive into like what you said, the first principles and maybe get into the unit economics of this early stage business and say, Hey, look, like I know they're losing tons of money right now, but this is actually a durable business and their business model makes sense. So like, have you, have you used, your found your your founding experience um, at with with that technology company as a way to help you suss out like a WeWork versus say another business that might have like strong unit economics and profitable over the mm-hmm. long term. Yeah, I mean we're not at LRT. You know, we're we're not really big investors in sort of early stage companies. Um, so it's not a, not not something that we're that interested in, and you know. Unfortunately, what you mentioned, you know, the economics and, and understanding SaaS business models and understanding that, you know, the income statement is a way that SaaS businesses invest through the income statement that sales and marketing can be thought of as an, as an investment. You know, all of those are things that the market knows very well and people know very well. And unfortunately, in my view, it's almost gone too far. You know, people are very now interested and susceptible into kind of listening to the story about how XYZ company is going to scale and do something. And, you know, all you have to do is look at ServiceNow, which was not kind of profitable in a gap basis for many years. And look what a success that's been. And so everything is like, you know, XYZ, right? Um, so unfortunately, I, I, I think that that thinking is, is useful. If you want to think about it that way, and I think it's a good mental exercise, but as a way of looking for investments, there's so many... Uh, minefields out there, you know, that, that I, I would be very careful about any kind of story stock. That's, so you started a company and kind of had this experience, but at LRT now today, you don't really invest in, 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 in those earlier stage companies. Is that, is that, is that because I've become like the grumpy old man, right? I was just, I was, I was, I was, I was just about to say that. Is it almost like a, you know, capital preservation risk, risk aversion type thing versus a slugging percentage type deal? No, I mean, I I look, I, I would say I'm quite aggressive as an investor. I just don't, I don't pursue, again, I, I'm not interested in stories. Like I'm just not a person that, that you, you're not going to move me with beautiful words. Hmm. Um, Farfetch, the, the luxury, whatever, online fashion luxury company, yep. you know, is still not profitable. And I keep reading about how it's going to be profitable and how it's the future of fashion. 
And I just don't see it. And you know, I don't know if it's down 80 or 90% now from, from where it was. Um, I'm actually looking it up right now. It touched a high. 76% from the peak. Um, I don't know what at what scale they ever become profitable. So that that and it always looked like a shit sandwich to me. Um, you know, C limited, right? Everyone's favorite C, you know, Southeast Asian company. I don't know what business they have pouring money into Shopee in Poland or or Latin America, frankly. Like, you know, C limited has free businesses, right? One, the gaming business, really good. Then they have the e-commerce business in you know. Southeast Asia, pretty good. And they have a payments business that's kind of attached to that. And that would be fine. And then they just keep pouring money into being a subscale e-commerce player all over the world. I don't get it. Maybe I'm stupid, but I don't get it. I don't know what business they have being the eighth e-commerce player in Poland and how that can ever you know, be profitable. Um, so that, that's, you know, that's my view on that. So would you say that you're, and, and, and going, going back to story, because when I, whenever, whenever I hear story, one of the first things I think of is Oswald Domodoran's narrative and numbers, Google talk yeah. he gave, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. which is incredible for anybody that hasn't listened to that. Just go on YouTube, type in Oswald Domodoran numbers and narratives. Are you not, is it, is it not necessarily a lack of story, but just a lack of how far out in the future you have to believe uh, in order, in order to get to that story, is that is that more of what it is, or is it, or is it just look like I don't really want to touch a stock that's got this nice story to it that doesn't have some sort of earnings power today? Yeah, I mean, I really need to see some of the unit unit economics being positive somewhere. Okay. Um, and, and yeah, I, I just don't see it. And you know, people have been talking about optionality, and again, people are acting as if they discovered something new here like oh my god some stocks have optionality that others don't and like look at me i'm so smart and it's gone to the point where you know as if a stock has any optionality it seems like sometimes it becomes priced as if you know the best possible scenario is almost what what becomes priced immediately Mm. yeah um and i I think that's totally nuts totally crazy another example you know of a total train wreck uber i mean I have a video on my website about Uber pre-IPO and I explain very clearly why I think it's a shit sandwich. And yeah, it's, it's gone nowhere. I mean, it has no pricing power. The, the, the network effect is local at best, um, you know, and it's just, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, you know, it, it is not good. Um, so it, it, we work, you know, again, it's not about looking out far into the future. It's like whoever doing, you know, basically short-term rentals or leases, right, of office space is is any way differentiated from, from what's been, this is not a new idea. It's just mm-hmm. like they somehow managed to convince people they're a tech company. I don't know if you read about how they're using AI and machine learning to optimize the office space. No, and you I ask didn't. them actually, what is it that you've <laughs> learned from all this AI research? And well, we learned that people drink more coffee in the morning. So we have more coffee ready in the morning. So that, that was the big, you know, <laughs> you, you see what I'm getting at, right? Technology yeah. um, is, is not a game changer in that kind of business. Got it. And what were, what were some of the things that when you, when you look back on your early evolution as an investor, you wish you maybe would have focused on more or put more emphasis on, and then 
if we if we inverse that question, what are some things you wish you would have done less of as you started developing this 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 knowledge base and this investment theses you have today? Yeah, I mean, I, I think to me, we do today we try to focus on the obvious kind of investments and things that are sort of obvious and and that we can understand, as opposed to um, you know complex and differentiated ideas, um, you know. I, I think the idea that you you look at primary, you know, or you look at, you know, 10Ks and read transcripts and, and you read something on Seeking Alpha and then you put things together and you somehow have unique insight, you know, I think that's, that's quite laughable, um, you know, unfortunately. And the idea that I will be the smartest guy in the world that will know something about this one company you know, it's the stock's been going down for eight years and looks really cheap, but now it's going to turn around because I really know something, you know, that kind of naive thinking mm. um, is something I've done in the past, right? Yeah. Um, certainly, you know, we focus on high quality companies today. I wish I've just focused on that more in the past, um, but that's, that's neither here nor there. It's a learning process. You know, I certainly invested in things, um, you know, we invested in a, I invested in a company called Cloud Peak Energy, which was a coal producer. Um, and I think I wrote it from 22 to two. Um, and it was all about how they have low cost and you know lowest costs, this and that and the other. Um, and I'm sure they had low costs, but they still went bankrupt at the end mm -hmm. of the day. Um, you know, or, or some contractor that was building subway systems in Mexico City or things of that nature. So. Those are the kinds of things that, that uh, you know, were very alluring to me uh, at one point, you know, 10 years ago um, that have clearly evolved away from. And I, I, I'm, I'm going to ask a question, and I, I mean this in the nicest way possible. <laughs> Here it comes. <laughs> do, you, do you think that you were drawn to these highly complex, um, I can figure it out, be, and meanwhile, other people can't. Do you think you were drawn to those because you have this, I would say, higher than average intelligence level, right? So you're like this very smart person. You graduated college in two years. You had, you know, a perfect ACT score. Do you think that that's why you were drawn to this is because like, oh, look, I can just use my brain power and just figure this thing out while others haven't? I would say it's probably just because I was young and naive mm -hmm. more, more than anything, Um you know, I, I think I had less self-awareness back then than I have now. Right. Um, you know, and, and I think you, if you read Buffett and you read some of the, you know, the early intelligent investor stuff, uh, you know, it's all about like stocks trading below cash or, or, or things of that nature. And, and Buffett is, you know, scouring records and he's finding hidden value. You know, I don't think that invest, that kind of style of investing exists in, in most kind of liquid markets today. Yeah. Yep. Agreed. So let's use that as a springboard then that, that, that style of investing to get into LRT and, and how you, you know, like, let's talk about the founding story of LRT capital. Like when did you start it? And then let's go soup to nuts on your research process and how you identify and structure your research process. Sure. So you know, I started my investment business, if you will, um, in Hong Kong when I moved there in 2012. And I started the fund there. 
um, simply because I had some money and I was also on a payroll of a political consulting firm at the time. So I actually didn't have to worry about health insurance or income or anything. That's amazing. Um, and I was living in Hong Kong. My ex-wife at the time had a great job there. Uh, we just had a kid that was born. Um, you know, so this, this was a way for me to work from home, build a track record, do something that I thought would be interesting, um, you know, and, and not, not worry about things too much. So that's, that's kind of what I did. Um, you know, and, and so I, I think there's an interesting question, you know, at 25, what could I have possibly known as an investor? And should I have maybe gone and worked actually for some, some other fund or other business? Um, you know, in, in hindsight, I think about that um, because without that, right, I had to learn probably a lot of basic lessons on my own, mm. as opposed to you know learning on the job uh, for, from somewhere else. But that again, neither here nor there. And then, so you set it up in Hong Kong, which is you know again yep. like fascinating and unique. You know, it's this, it's this high school tech founder that sets up a hedge fund in Hong Kong um, to, to, to invest in businesses and, and how, how was your research process, um, when, when you, when you started and, and, and what does it look like today? Sure. The, the research process, I don't know that it's that unique or that differentiated. Um, you know, what we look for is, is different, but in terms of the process, we read all the kind of standard, you know, sources, the 10 Ks, Qs, transcripts, um, you know, any other material we can get our hands on. And then, you know, you try to understand the industry, you try to understand the kind of competitive dynamics. To me, what we're literally looking for, right, is a company with three characteristics. We're looking for a business that has a competitive advantage that we understand that we think is durable. We're looking for a business that can grow and reinvest capital over time. And then we're looking for management that is a good sort of allocator of capital uh, because we think management ultimately is that link between business value and shareholder value. Hmm. So that's, that's what we're trying to find. And it really goes in that order. Um, you know, the first thing is the business quality and, and the, the competitive dynamics in the industry. How does competition evolve, um, et cetera. So that, that's what we spend most of our time on. Um, you know, we tend to look for things that are already profitable, that have a history of being profitable, um, that are predictable in some way. Um, and and those, are, those are places we start. To us, a competitive advantage um, you know, comes down to really a combination of four things. Uh, number one, you can have some intangible assets, brands, patents, licenses, government approvals, et cetera, things that inhibit competitive entry. Number two, you can have network effects and network effects, you know, occur anytime increasing the number of users makes the product or service more valuable. Number three, you can have switching costs, right? And switching costs arise anytime it's risky, expensive, difficult, or time consuming to change suppliers. And finally, you can have economies, uh, you have cost advantages that are generally tied to economies of scale or Less, less commonly the process, right? That, that gives some kind of cost advantage. So those are four things that we're looking for, intangible assets, um, network effects, switching costs, and durable, sustainable cost advantages. Um, but within that, there's a lot of nuance and there's a lot of, you know, you really have to think 
carefully about these things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so for example, Visa and MasterCard, right, have a great network effect and sort of this is well understood. And there, there's a real network effect there. On the other hand, Western Union, though they claim they have the largest network of you know, points where you can send money from, and that, I think that's technically true, that that network is not as valuable as Visa or MasterCard, right? Because there's a lot of people sending money from Mexico City to Chicago or from Chicago to Manila, uh, but there's not a lot of people sending money from Manila to Mexico City, right? So not all the links are equally valuable. Uh, that's a kind of canonical example of, of a much weaker network effect. Um, you know, on switching costs, I'll give you another example. I keep hearing this about elevator companies, right? Like you put the elevator in and then there's a servicing contract and how this is a switching cost. Well, guess what? There's no lock-in, there's no tie-in. If you buy an Otis elevator, you don't have to have Otis service it. So there's no pricing power. Um, this is just a, the, you know, about labor and the number of bodies. And the, the four major OEMs that manufacture elevators only have about 20% of the market share globally for actually servicing elevators. So this is one of these examples that everyone tells me about moats. It's like an every investor moat presentation. And, and yet it's totally wrong. And I can go on and on. But yeah, well, let's, I'll, let's, I'll let's, let's keep going, right? Because Otis, Otis is one that surprised me where I thought, you know, again, maybe, maybe they had a moat, but the way you described it makes sense. So what are, what are some other fake moats? Oh, fake moats. Um, you know, I, I think certainly there's a lot of brand based kind of fake moats that are, that are out there. Um, you know, Mercedes, right? Mercedes has a beautiful brand, beautiful brand promise, if you will. Uh, the, the problem is Mercedes costs more to manufacture than Honda. Uh, so even though you know, it has a higher price and people are willing to pay more for it, um, the reality is that there, there's, there's higher cost to it. So it's not structurally more profitable than Honda, if you will. Hmm. Got it. Um, you know, cost advantages... Cost advantages and economies of scale really matter and are a very good um, source of competitive advantage if the market you're competing in is kind of well um, well defined and not growing very quickly. So if you're a supermarket on a small tropical island, your cost structure is going to be much lower than a mom and pop vendor. And there's no real space for another supermarket to be built the island itself is not going to grow. There's only so many tourists coming. That's a real competitive advantage. But if you're in a market that's growing very quickly, um, you know, there's, there's going to be time and space for competitors to catch up and build scale as well. So there, you know, being the largest player in a very fast-growing market actually doesn't confer much of an advantage. In, in many ways, fast-growing markets um, do, you know, do neutralize a lot of competitive advantages. So for example, switching costs, right? Um, if you're selling software like Avalara or Avalara, the tax software company, SaaS business, yep. um, that's a good business. Um, but the market they're in kind of converting to software-based sales tax accounting is still pretty new and it's growing pretty quickly. So there's space for new competitors to come in and take market share, right? Because Sure, there is lock-in once you're integrated with Avalara, but you know there's a lot of new customers who are, are new to the market. They're not locked into anything yet. And so 
fast growth, you know, makes those kind of switching costs much, much lower. Hmm. No, that's fascinating. I mean, it makes, it makes complete sense. And is that, is that maybe going, going all the way back to kind of how you were saying Carvana? Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to say, I don't want to put words in your mouth and say that, you know, you think it's a dead company walking, but, um, is that, is that one of the reasons why you might not be as bullish on Carvana is because, you know, although one of the big points there is look like we're going to get these increasing scale benefits as we add more IRCs throughout the country, we can get closer to the customer. We can do, we can, we can reduce logistics costs, but the industry itself is growing very fast. So is that, is that kind of the, 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 the model you're using there? So the, the used car industry is, is not growing at all. Um, there's, there's almost no growth in the used car business. Um, it's about taking share from incumbents. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Carvana argument is that physical real estate that's decentralized doesn't confer an advantage to anyone. And they're going to centralize things and ultimately have lower costs once they reach a certain scale. Um, I think there's something to that argument, but it doesn't confer... It, you know, it doesn't translate into a $50 billion market cap company. Um, so I, I think there's, there's a lot more, uh, you know, now it's 20 billion after being down, I don't know, 70%. So the, the fact that they still can't get to, you know, profitability um, at the current scale, I think is a, is a real warning sign that the business model is broken. Let's go further now into this into this research process and and discuss portfolio construction um, because this was one of the really interesting things I found about your process and your fund is you add this systematic layer of portfolio construction and hedging that I think is unique um, and so walk us through that portfolio construction process like what was what was the rationale behind coming up with this systematic approach. And then how did you come up with, you know, the uh, 40 to 50 long idea range as opposed to say, you know, 10 to 15 or 15 to 20? Yeah. So, you know, the way it works is, again, we're, we're looking for companies that I think meet our criteria. Again, the competitive advantage, the ability to grow and reinvest, and a management team that does a good job of capital allocation. And if any of those things are you know not met then then it's an easy pass and none of those there's very few companies that will that will score sort of an a plus on all categories right um we we, we're you know depends on the business you may have an a plus moat and a b minus growth and a b minus management and that may be okay and then there's other businesses where you know that the moat is like a b minus but the management is an a plus and so you have to figure out and weigh those factors for yourself. But we have a list of companies we did, did work on that we think are sort of in our investable universe. And there's about 150, 160 companies on that list. And they, they cover really the, the, the spectrum of different industries, company sizes, et cetera. From there, we have built, I have built um, software and I built this over the last 15 years, frankly. So it's a, wow. a long and evolving process. Damn. <laughs> we built software that basically constructs the portfolio. And what we're trying to do is, you know, there, there's some object, we, there's an optimizer, there's a quadratic optimizer that I wrote. And there's some objective function we're trying to minimize. Um, and then, you know, if you kind of specify it in this very generic sense, you can actually 
you, you can set the objective function to be almost anything, as long as the problem is quadratic. Um, and so, you know, we've, we're trying to minimize portfolio volatility subject to a lot of different constraints, um, such as factor exposures, et cetera. And we calculate all those things internally, you know, automatically all the time. Wow. So when it comes to this 150 universe, is it, you know, you go all the way down to like a, you know, small cap, like a 300, $500 million company, or like, do you, do you, do you set any, you know, geographical or market cap limits on that? We don't have any real market cap limits, but we do have some liquidity constraints in terms of, you know, being able to get in and out of things. Um, we do have, you know, a liquid fund with monthly liquidity uh, and we promise that monthly liquidity to investors. So we're, we're not getting into things that are illiquid. The smallest market cap is probably two or $3 billion that okay. we that we have in a portfolio and you know we've looked at things as small as a billion or so got it and with this systematic approach what advantage does it give you ultimately over the typical sure. buy and hold investor right like what's like what's the secret sauce without giving the secret sauce yeah so look um first off i would say one of the secret sauces is there's a stack of literature you know five feet high on something called the low volatility phenomenon. And that basically says that low volatility stocks have high risk adjusted returns. And so if you look at the volatility of an AutoZone or most say AutoZone O'Reilly, most consumer staples, um, all of those have, you know, betas of say 0 0.7, 0 0.8, which is below, you know, the average of the market. And historically, they've actually delivered returns greater than the market. And again, if you study stocks and we have a database, there's a, a very strong relationship basically showing that high beta means low alpha. Mm -hmm. And so that's number one. So we're, we're making some sort of nice adjustments for that in our optimization process. We're, we're sort of overweighting lower than average volatility stocks. Got it. And if you look at our top names, which are in all of our investor letters, you know, you look at what we own, these are kind of stable, predictable businesses. So you would expect the stocks to, to have a similar kind of stable, predictable trading pattern. That's number one, taking advantage of that. Number two, um, we're trying to have the portfolio as diversified as possible. And people, you know, people set industry or sector constraints or limits but the reality is um those kind of posi you know, position limits or industry concentration limits actually don't reflect how stocks trade often so visa is uh, you know visa are, i think used to be or maybe still is classified as a financial company right visa and its economics have nothing to do with the economics of jp morgan and so that the stocks actually trade completely differently. Um, so those are kind of examples, you know, we, we actually look at how the stocks trade versus each other, as opposed to some naive concentration limits. So yeah. we actually have a very diversified portfolio as, as much as possible within that kind of investable universe. Yeah. The last thing I would say is the system determines what percentage of our portfolio should be in each stock. And we simply mechanically trade to get to those positions. 
And so the advantage of that is you're eliminating all the human biases, right? So you're eliminating people who want to double, you know, you're eliminating the feeling of wanting to double down on yep. things that, uh, you know, maybe going against you, you know, I'm going to pound the table, I'm going to make this 20% of my portfolio. And, you know, you hear about them when it all turns out great and the stock triples and they're heroes. You don't hear about the people who blow up their fund doing this. Yeah. Um, so reducing that kind of blow up risk. The other thing is it does also give us confidence to go into things that look pretty ugly um, and, and at the right size or what we think in probabilistic terms is the right size. Um, so we just made a very small investment yesterday in a software company called EPAM that has the majority of its workforce in Poland, Ukraine, and Russia. I was looking at EPAM yesterday too. Yeah, so I, I, I think I tweeted about that. Um, you know, and the position is sub 1%, and yeah. we put it on yesterday. And the reason we, we put it on, and the reason it became in, came into the portfolio yesterday is because what happened to the company, right, mm -hmm. is so different from the rest of the market, right? So its correlation to the rest of the market is very low right now. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's kind of what drives part of what's, what's happening in the optimizer. Got it. So there's a lot of little nuances out there, um, but in, in general, what we're trying to do is just deliver as diversified, smooth returns as possible. And we also have hedges. So that's the other thing, right? We have six different hedges in the book. Um, and, and so those hedges are also paired up with the longs in a kind of complex way. And again, all of that happens in a quantitative process. And that's how we end up with a portfolio of a beta, with a beta of roughly 0.6. Uh, because the things that were long, they tend to be lower than average volatility. And the things that were short, you know, they're, they're mid and small cap indexes, which tend to have, uh, you know, volatility that's, that's slightly above average. Mm -hmm. And so this, this, this EPAM buy, which again, I, I find interesting because I was, I was looking at it as well. Is it, is it one of those where this, this was a buy again, sub sub 1% where you know enough about the business where you might not have done like extensive deep work on it, but you say, look, I kind of know that it has the ingredients of what I want. And it's at a price that clearly is, is, is diverging from where every other stock is going. So let me just put this position on. And then over time, I'll accumulate more knowledge and maybe turn this into a bigger position. Is that kind of how you thought about it? No, no, no. So we've done deep work on EPAM. We, we know the company quite well. Okay. It's, there, there's three companies that I would say are very similar, EPAM, um, Globant, and, and Dava. And they're all kind of, uh, uh, you know, IT project outsourcing. There used to be another company called Luxoft, which was purchased by DXC. Uh, and they, they, did a very, they did a very similar job. So basically they're, they're you know, they're doing IT projects for... Um, you know, for Western companies out of low cost locations. So Globant, for example, is primarily headquartered in Buenos Aires. So they have tons of smart people in Buenos Aires and all throughout Latin America, but primarily Buenos Aires, um, you know, doing IT work for JP Morgan and other people of that nature. Now, those stocks trade at valuations that are, you know, quite crazy. Um, and so they're not really part of the portfolio. And we know EPAM quite well. And the bet here is that they're going to be able to relocate their business largely to Poland um, and kind of survive this. 
um, and, and then you know come out of this this more more or less uh, unscathed over the longer term. And so the position size is purely a function of its risk and volatility and how it contributes to the portfolio. It's okay. not a function of conviction in any way. Got it. Okay, that's 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 an important distinction. I'm glad I I'm glad I asked that because, um, you know, some I I I'm I'm a little bit more of a sometimes I'll take a starter in a position where I know enough where I think I can say like, all right, like, let me, let me get a small starter on. I'll do more work. And I know that that's, you know, one, one way of doing it. Um, so, but it sounds, it's a problem like, with that approach. So I hear what you're saying. And a lot of people tell me the same thing. Here's the problem with that approach. Yeah. Uh, in behavioral finance and behavioral economics, there's something called the endowment bias. Yeah. Um, basically once it's in your portfolio, you're not thinking logically about it relative to all your other opportunities. Once it's in your portfolio, you're going to start justifying spending more time and more research on it versus something that's not in the portfolio because you're more familiar with it. You're spent more time with it, um, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yep. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard to argue with that because I mean, you really can't, it's, it's, you know, Hey, I bought this and now it's kind of like that pet that you found on the side of the road and you brought it home and gave it some water and now you're attached to it. Yeah. So that, that's a problem. The other thing in terms of position sizing um, you know, imagine you do a so-called starter position of 1% or 2%, and then you have a rule that says, you know, I'll scale into it over time if it goes down, right? Okay, sounds very, very I've heard this from other investors, sounds very logical, right? Like we buy a small position and it probably goes down a bit and we buy more over time. Well, what happens if it goes up, right? So if that's your decision rule, what you've ended up with is a portfolio that's systematically being overweighted stocks that underperform. Hmm. And the ones that outperform, you have those, your small startup positions in, right? So yeah. that's the problem. Um, you know, we were buying a stock yesterday that was, that's at a 52-week high. Um, and it was up 4% during the day and we were still buying more of it yesterday. It's not something I would have done if I was making a discretionary decision. The system said, you know, we, we got to be more in this and we're not enough in it. And we were buying. Yeah. Um, it, it may look stupid to a fundamental approach investor, um, but it is, I think, the right thing to do from a kind of risk management portfolio construction perspective. Got it. No, that makes sense. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying. And so let's, let's dive into these other names in the portfolio. And, 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 and I picked, I picked three Watsco tractor supply and then, and then Hexel, which I guess is, is, is one of your newer ideas. Um, let's, let's start with Watsco and the way I kind of want to roll through Watsco and tractor supply is just again, soup, soup to nuts, you know, walk us through how you found the business, what you liked about it, the, 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 the mental models you may have used in kind of understanding the value opportunity and then, you know, just dive into, okay, I know it's a great business. Let me think about position sizing. Let me think about risks and all that. Yeah. So, you know, in terms of research and finding investment ideas, that's sort of a common question people ask. We look for investment ideas by sort of mapping out industries, mapping out value chains, um, and thinking about all the companies that are involved in that and thinking through kind of a moat perspective, right? And that, that will very quickly help you identify where value, you know, sort of outsized economic returns may accrue. Um, so think about, say, the, the automotive industry for a second, right? You have the manufacturers of the cars, you have parts suppliers, 
you have people that sell the cars, finance the cars, insure the cars, service the cars, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and then you know, there's some end of life of the cars as well, things like you know auction houses. If you think through where there are economies of scale, where brands may matter, where competition may be about something else than price alone, mm-hmm. um, you know those are kind of good places to start your thinking about where where better businesses may be so that's that's how i would think about it so in terms of watsco it's an air conditioning supplier so it's basically supplies your your air conditioner um roughly 15 to 20 percent of the business is new home construction and the rest is replacing existing uh installed air conditioners got it you know we came across watsco thinking through sort of the, the, the housing value chain, right? And so there are companies that actually do home construction. There are suppliers to those companies, right? Uh, you know, companies like Top Build, uh, Builders Source, um, you know, Masco, which which makes various widgets that go into the house. Um, there's there's you know companies that make ranges and things that go into your kitchen. Um, you know, there's Sherwin Williams, which sells paint. There are, you know, roofing and tiling and, and there, there's Trex, which sells, you know, the, the plastic decks and all that. So there's a lot of businesses that go into that, you know, uh, Home Depot and Lowe's, almost you can think of as a tax on real estate, right? Mm-hmm. Once you own a home, you'll find it's almost impossible to do anything around your house without a trip to Home Depot. Yeah. Um, those are kinds of businesses that you think about, you know, Pool Corp servicing and, and, and building out pools, pool supplies, um, what's called the air conditioning space, you know, Sherwin-Williams repainting. Again, these are things that people have figured out. I'm, I'm not saying this is like brand new, uh, you know, things you've you never heard about, but that's kind of how we go about it. And then you think about, you know, whose business is more stable, whose business has generated returns over time, you know, how did they do during the, the housing crash from you know, 2006 to like 2010, um, you know, because there are businesses that went bankrupt and there are businesses that merely, you know, were less profitable. And so there, there's, there's difference there. Um, so we, we have a whole, you know, we, ha- we have a whole plethora of companies that are connected to housing in some way um, that we've looked at, that we like, and we've identified. Watsco uh, specifically, we've owned for quite a while. Um, it is a business that really is all about, um, number one, having pricing power because they are, their customers are the AC equipment, you know, technicians effectively, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so think about your AC breaking and always breaks on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, it's a hundred degrees outside. It's really hot in your house. You call your technician. He comes over. He says, yeah, it's broken, man. Um, you know, and you want it fixed and you say yeah and like what is it going to cost and you might give you a, a low medium and high price option mm-hmm. and you generally don't spend a lot of time arguing or researching um you know you probably are not going to buy it online and wait three weeks for a delivery from halfway across the country either and yep. most people and including myself don't really know how much an air conditioner should cost like is it a thousand dollars five thousand ten thousand i don't know it's almost I mean, like health insurance, that. like medical medical practices. It's like you go in and you have no idea what an MRI should cost for your right arm. 
Correct. And, and, you know, we don't replace air conditioners that often. So what should it cost? We don't really know. And the technician knows and the technician gets the supplies from a company like Watsco, from one of their local, um, local warehouses. And so it is a business that is very predictable because I said about 80% of demand is tied to just replacing existing units. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like car insurance, you know, in Austin, we have 2 million cars, you know, 2 million air conditioners. You can forecast very accurately, you know, almost years in advance, how many of them are going to break mm-hmm. because they break at a certain you know, interval. Not everyone breaks the same, but again, big population, it all tends towards a very predictable mean. Um, the competition is again, limited geographically. You know, there's a king of Chicago, king of Miami, king of Austin, if you will, in the AC bit distribution business. Um, so that's number one. Number two, there's pricing power. Because again, there's the supplier, the, the, the contractor kind of selects the supplier and you just pay for it. And there's other businesses that you'll, you'll find as well where some expert suggests a product and you basically foot the bill, right? And, and so, you know, uh, audiologists, people that, that do hearing aids, that's a very common example of that. Uh, there's several others, but that, that's kind of way, one way to think about it. So that, that by itself gives you good margins, good pricing power. On the other side, you know, there's seven or eight uh, major air conditioning uh, equipment suppliers. And I think all of them except um, Lennox, um, you know, work with third-party distributors. So, you know, that the supplier base is also quite fragmented. So the suppliers don't have a lot of pricing power either. And mm-hmm. so you have a business that's predictable, that is stable, that is not very macro-sensitive, um, that has pricing power, where competition is really a series of local oligopolies where economies of scale uh, matter. Watsco is a very large company relative to competitors. They're able to invest in technology, in IT, in, in different apps, um, in, in you know, financing products that the, that the technician can offer you. So they have a product where you can, the technician on his iPad can pre-approve you for a loan to finance this purchase, right? That's supplied by Watsco. Um, those are things that Watsco can do, being a multi-billion-dollar publicly traded company that smaller companies can't do. So they have an advantage over, over you know, the competition in the space. There's a clear moat. Um, they've clearly generated attractive returns on invested capital, and then they can grow, and they grow almost exclusively through acquisition, right? So there's still a lot of places uh, where there's a local family controlling a distributor like this, and over time, people are retiring uh, and they're, they're looking to sell those companies and Watsco is a logical acquirer. So that's, that's uh, the growth component. And finally, the management team, you know, it's, it is family controlled effectively. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, they, they, they have big insider ownership. They have a very unique stock vesting plan, which I think is unique in corporate America in that um, you have to be their equity awards best after 10 years or upon retirement, whichever is later, which, which is again, pretty crazy in America. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Which, you know, it, you can say it's good or bad. It may, you know, it clearly attracts people who want to spend their whole career at the company. Yeah. Uh, but maybe it doesn't 
rotate people fast enough out of the company if they're not good enough. So that's maybe the other question. Um, but you know, it's a unique, unique business. Um, I think air conditioning, unfortunately, is going to be necessary for almost all homes built because of climate change. Uh, and I just don't see it going away. It's not a business that's going to double overnight, but I don't see it collapsing overnight either. And it trades at a small premium sort of to the S&P 500 on a earnings basis. Um, you know, I think earnings are a little bit understated because of some intangibles being amortized into income, but that does get neither here nor there. Got it. And so when you look at a name like that and, you know, you can pretty much say, look, in, in, in 10 years, people are still going to need air conditioners and they're, you know, Watsco is probably going to be the leading beneficiary of that, of that demand. How do you yeah. then think about returns from an IRR perspective? And maybe do you, do you guys have any sort of hurdle rate for, for five to 10 year forward returns? We, we think about businesses that we'd like to invest in that we think can increase an in intrinsic value by kind of 15% per year. And, and in general, for us, intrinsic value is some kind of you know, earnings, cash flow earnings, owner earnings that you know, might be defined however. Um, that's, that's kind of what we're looking for. If you can grow your wealth at about 15% a year without, uh, you know, with very low risk of downside, um, you will be, become fabulously wealthy over time. So that's, that's kind of what we're doing. And at the portfolio level, our portfolio uses leverage. So that's why our portfolio has, you know, compounded uh, at a much higher rate, you know, roughly double that target. But the underlying companies we're looking for, like a 15% bogey, if you will. Got it. Got it. Nope. That's, that is uh, good, good to know. Let's move on to tractor supply now, which is a super popular stock, at least in kind of the compounder uh, investment, uh, compounder bro area, FinTwit. <laughs> Not to not to not I'm to a, denigrate. I'm a, bro. I'm a proud member of the compounder bro. Uh, <laughs> I just I just like poking fun at poking fun at that uh, at that sure. at that little group just just a little bit. Um, yeah. But you know, I mean, the businesses are incredible. So let's walk let's walk through tractor supply kind of the same way you did you did Watsco. Like, what's what's so great sure. about this business, and 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 why is why is their moat so durable? Look, I mean, so. We, we found tractor supply as a kind of derivative idea from Home Depot, frankly. Um, Home Depot, 15 years ago, was already a very successful company that I would say almost everyone knew about. And yet, if you just invested in Home Depot, you crushed the S&P 500 without doing much else. And so we look for those kind of, call it no-brainer ideas. Um, tractor supply was, was just one of those. It's much smaller store format. It is still a little bit, say, underperforming relative to a Home Depot. Um, but they focus on similar things with, I would say, slightly more consumable elements. So a lot of what they sell is pet-related, pet feed, uh, you know, uh, animal feed products. So there's a little bit more repeat business there. Um, smaller towns, smaller stores. Um, at the end of the day, it's about economies of scale in purchasing, in national advertising, they have a loyalty program, which induces some switching costs. Um, and there's still space for them to grow. It's still somewhat of a fragmented space and they, they're, they've been consolidating it through acquisition um, and then some you know, organic growth as well. So again, it, it's not, you know, this is not a moat like Watsco. This is not a moat like uh, Microsoft. 
I would call this a B minus mode, if you will. You know, operational efficiency matters quite a bit. This is not a business you can get your idiot uncle to run, um, but it's, it's a well-run business nonetheless. Um, you know, and they generate returns on invested capital in the 20s and they're growing top line in the, you know, in the, the low teens, high, high single digits, low teens, uh, investing it logically. They still have a long runway for growth. Uh, management is, you know, okay. The management right now, I think the current executive is from either home deep or lows. Uh, so they know the playbook quite well. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, it, and it's a simple business that I can understand. And I think most importantly, um, it doesn't trade at a premium valuation to the S&P. <laughs> That's the beauty of this. Right, you're buying a business which I think is way above average, uh, which is growing at you know roughly double the average American business, and you're buying it you know trailing PE 23 forward 20, and where's the S&P 24? I mean, so you're you're paying less or 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 close to it for a business that's that's quite above average in in my view. Got it. No, I mean, and I, I would say you know tractor supply is almost like the prototypical LRT kind of investment. Things that are above average for reasons X, Y, Z that you can get for nearly average valuations, you know, where future growth um, is kind of free. So growth matters in the context of a competitive advantage, right? If you have a strong competitive advantage, and that simply means you're earning returns on capital, you know, that are 15 to 20% or higher, and you can grow that future growth is incredibly valuable, especially in an interest rate environment that's, that's zero, effectively, or close to zero. Um, and so to me, that, that's worth a premium. And if you're, if you're telling me I can buy it at the average valuation in the market, you know, I feel like I'm getting the future super normal profits for free. Um, and, and there's quite a few examples of businesses like that. Got it. Um, it, all, it almost reminds me of, you know, a business and I'm, I'm, I'm sure you guys have looked at it, but like an auto zone or something, um, kind of, kind of meets your, your, your quintessential investment. Yeah, absolutely. And it still trades at a, at a, you know, valuation that's under the market. It makes no sense to me, but okay. I mean, I mean, auto zones even, yeah. I mean, auto zones cheaper than track auto zones, like 18 times trailing 12 months earnings. Wow. And for many years it traded up 10 times. Yeah. That's crazy. Huh. Um, yeah, look, I mean, there, there's risks. There are people who will tell you Amazon's going to kill them. Electric cars are going to kill them, this, that, and the other. And those, those are the real risks. I mean, I'm not trying to be dismissive. Um, but I, I think if you look at it, there, there are sort of mitigants out there. And if the valuation is low, like, like again, used to be 10 times earnings, you can have you know, a very good return for, for shareholders. We own um, Askberry Auto Group, which is a car dealership. Yep. And yep. You know, it trades at six times trailing earnings. And you might say they're over-earning right now because of used car prices, this, that, and the other. Um, you know, but this is a business which has compounded EPS at over 20% for 10 plus years. And it's trading at six times earnings. Um, you know, and so long, long growth runway for more reinvestment for consolidation you know a, a lot has to go wrong i think to lose a lot of money at six times earnings for a business like this right no i'd agree 
let's 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 dive into your latest idea now hexel i mean latest in the sense of i think it was the latest like deep dive you've, you've yeah created. so so you know we can we, we we started publishing about some ideas that or, or things that we have in our portfolio to give just just to give our investors a sense of how we think about things and why we think we we own them but the moment we publish it it's it's not a stock pitch like we're not saying right now is a time to buy and if you read all of our letters you read our you know, investor notes. Um, we're, we're almost never saying anything about what's happening right now to the company, unless it's like COVID related or, or something of nature. We're, ne we're never saying there's some short-term catalyst to be had here. Um, so uh, with that Hexel, you know, Hexel is effectively in a global duopoly making carbon fiber composites with a Japanese company called Tore. And, uh, you know, they make they make kind of the raw material, the, the carbon composite, which then other companies manufacture complex parts out of. That's their main main business. Um, you know, it's about economies of scale because you need to build a big facility to, to make these things. It's about switching costs and relationships with suppliers because if you're supplying things to like Spirit Aerosystems, which, which then makes big components for, for Boeing, um, you know, you... You have to be a certified trusted supplier it's not something i'm going to get into tomorrow you know the lucas to mickey carbon fiber composite company is not going to have a lot of customers tomorrow yeah uh, even if we pump a lot of money into it um you know and, and so we have these very long product cycles with with the airplanes they're selling into um and aerospace and defense is 80 percent of the business and then the rest is is kind of specialty things like you know light car parts so BMW is a customer, et cetera. Um, but it's about sort of barriers to entry, right? It's not, this is not a business like, again, Microsoft. This is a kind of mid-teens return on invested capital business um, that just has a lot of durability, I think, very high barriers to entry. And as airplanes and especially the short-haul fleets get upgraded, whatever Boeing and Airbus come out with next, is going to probably have a much higher carbon composite, um, you know, percentage of the build than than the current versions. Right now, it's the long haul planes, the the A three fifty and the seven eight seven that have a very significant carbon composite, um, you know, percentage. Mm -hmm. um, and there, it's all about weight saving, and, and there's many reasons why carbon composite is a good material. Um, but it's it's the short haul planes that are really waiting for the next generation to be upgraded so that's that's probably gonna be the next step up in the business uh, but in the meantime you know it, it's a business that's still recovering from covid and of course recovering from low production levels um, in in the aerospace business very high barriers to entry you know I, I think aerospace comes back production comes back airbus is producing as much as they can given their supply constraints um, Boeing, I think, will get their their things together, you know, with the seven eight seven sooner or later. Um, you know, they're they're having major issues there right now with quality and the the issues they're having there. But I think they they'll come back from that. So, you know, it's it's one of the very few kind of COVID reopening travel stocks that we think ha still has a lot to to you know improve. Um, and I think it can improve earnings a little bit faster than people are giving it credit for. 
because it is largely a fixed cost business. So, so once, once you kind of get to full capacity, you know, the profitability will, will be much higher um, than it is. And, if, and again, if you look at estimates from analysts, I think they're just very low in terms of the speed of the recovery. Got it. Uh, are there any ideas? I know you mentioned EPAM uh, as one as when you guys started buying. Are there any other companies, or you don't you don't have to get specific with names, but just companies or business models that 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 you're diving into today that you're really excited about over the next five years? Um, we we bought a small position in Massimo, the pulse oximeter business, and we did that yesterday as well. Um, so Massimo makes pulse oximeters and associated software, and they sell to hospitals. Um, you know, it's a business that's all about uh, intangible assets, patents, and, and the, the kind of network of software they built around that. Um, they, you know, it was a very highly valued stock for, for a long time. And first it was down because high valued stocks were down this year. And then they did a little bit of boo-boo with buying this um, you know, high-end audio business, which people just like, everyone's hair just set on fire when they heard this and the stock think fell 40% in a day or something. Um, but that's, that's neither here nor there. And you know, it will either be neutral for the company or it will, um, you know, it will be a, a home run for the company. That, that's kind of how I see it. They, they had very few other, other alternatives for using capital effectively, given their valuation. They currently you know, create value at buying back stock. There was limited reinvestment needs internally anyway. Uh, so we'll see how this turns out. You know, we like medical devices. Um, you know, this is a 1.5% type position today. Um, so, so we'll see, see where that goes. I will tell you there's other medical device companies that we're looking at. Um, one that reported earnings yesterday, and I'll, I'll leave you at that because we haven't bought it yet. So, but maybe you can figure it out, or your listeners can figure out what we're talking about. Yeah, there's a there's there there's some companies that I'll that I'll DM you after after the show that I that I that I think you'd enjoy. Um, because I I just had Peter uh Peter Mantis on from yeah, yes, and he he kind of dives into that uh bio you know life sciences and yep. medical, and medical shovels. so, so I, I know all that i know that space replogen charles river um mm-hmm. you know west um yeah so great podcast um and we, those are kinds of things we like absolutely um you know icon which runs drug trials uh, ikiva which is which is uh, you know drug and patient data uh, so all of those are on our radar uh, we own Replogen, um, you know, and it's a top 10 position. We like it. And we're, you know, we, we've been trimming it here and there. Um, you know, part of part of our systematic process, right, is that we're kind of, we have a computerized system that says, well, it should be, say, three and a half percent of the portfolio, right? And so we, we bought it at 190 last year. It went to over 300. That means every month as we rebalance the portfolio, we were selling a little bit of it, right? Because if something goes from 190 to 300, you know, you're, you're gonna be in, and you, you keep a kind of a constant portfolio exposure, you're gonna be sell, selling as it goes up. Yeah. And then it, and it collapsed. I mean, so now it's, I think it was below 200 a couple of weeks ago and I don't know where it is today, but 
you know, it's bounced around a bit. So earnings have doubled over the, the last year. The stock is flat, um, but we, you know, we have contributed profitably to the fund through it because we were, again, systematically selling as it went up. Got it. And wrapping up here, I know it's, you know, we're almost at an hour and a half now, and I, I, I appreciate the time you're taking. If we, if we look ahead over the next, you know, five to 10 years, where are some aspects of your investment process, whether it's how you analyze businesses, how you, um, you know, think about different opportunities, maybe it's trying to add some models to your process to get more comfortable with different types of investments. Um, where, where are you trying to improve most? as an investor, if we look out over the next sure, year. Sure, I mean, look, I, I think there is a case to be made that for the next five to 10 years, commodities are gonna do much better than they had in the previous 10, right? There's been a lot of underinvestment in commodities and commodities are not a place where we would normally invest, right? So it's something that's very difficult for us. Uh, there are very few real competitive advantages there. Um, so that's something we're trying to figure out if there's something we can do there that, that would be you know, value creative. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are some businesses which have commodity exposure that I think the market perceives as being very commoditized. Uh, and some of them, there are some little places where we think there may be a competitive advantage emerging. Um, so we're looking at those things. Um, that are of interest to us. And, and you, know, you, you can really do extremely well when an industry goes from not having a competitive advantage to suddenly having one. So if you think about the US railroads, you know, in the late 90s, they consolidate sufficiently, they get sufficiently efficient that returns on invested capital as you rise. And you know, since then, railroads have been a home run for investors. Even though before people were very dismissive and Buffett started buying railroads People thought he lost his marbles, um, you know, and now, of course, uh, you know, it turns out to be great. So those are the kinds of things we're looking for. I'm not, I can't promise we're going to find anything useful or that we're going to find a lot that enters into our portfolio. Um, but I do think commodities, you know, for, fortunately or not, are going to, to be a more interesting place to invest. Um, you know, seven years ago, you could buy a coal minor at six times earnings, or you could buy Apple at nine times earnings or 10 times. To me, that was a no brainer. Yeah. Today, Apple is at 31 times earnings and a coal miner is at one time. And so, you know, that the, the choice has become harder, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that's something we, we'd like to get better at and figure out if there's something we can do. Um, but we're very kind of cautious uh, and not, you know, not trying to get outside of our knowledge zone, comfort zone, et cetera. Got it. Where can people go to find out more about you? I know there's, you know, the website for the fun, but you're also on Twitter. Uh, I'm, I'm mainly a lurker on Twitter. Um, so Why is so that? My, my, my tweeting is extremely limited. Um, you know, it's very easy to get a hold of me. Uh, we have a website, we have a phone number. I'm on LinkedIn. Come visit our office. Um, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not particularly engaged in social media, but I, I'm, I pick up the phone when people call. So why do you, why do you choose to lurk on Twitter instead of post more? I, I, I you know, I, I think, uh, I think you have to realize, 
partially has to probably do with how I grew up, you know, always being the, the outsider in anywhere I went, you know, going from Poland to the UK to Hungary to the US, etc. Um, and so as a result, you know, maybe of my personality as a result, I just don't particularly care uh, what other people think on different companies. Like I've never asked anyone on Twitter or frankly, in any, any of my investor friends, what they think about a company that we have in our portfolio. Like it's just, if I like it, I like it. And you're not going to, I don't need your opinion to validate my opinion mm-hmm. and vice versa. It's like, if you tell me it's wonderful and I look at it, I don't get it. I'm not going to invest. So that's, that's, you know, maybe it's an arrogant approach to thinking, but I, I just don't know that. I don't think that I have, there's a lot of smart people on Twitter. I don't think I am incrementally adding a lot of value, frankly, hmm. um, by posting about what's go. Now, Clearly, Brandon, you found my what's go write up useful, and I'm I'm happy you did. Um, yeah. But I I don't know that I I feel like I need to post another Twitter thread about why Home Depot is a great company. I think it's widely known and understood. I'm happy to discuss it if you ask me, but it's like I I just don't know that uh, people care, frankly. So <laughs> there you go. Do you think that you might be missing out on on the potential for maybe finding blind spots in your own research when when looking at companies by not reaching out to other people on Twitter just saying hey like can you red team this for me or or, or is it something where you've got that locked down in your process that you don't even feel like you need to go you know to reach out and 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 basically use use the collective to find um, where where you could be wrong I feel I don't, we don't invest in battlegrounds or kind of highly contentious areas. Yeah. And we tend not to invest in things that are of crazy valuation. So, you know, the downsides are, I think are a little bit more limited. Um, And also I know myself, I know my process. I don't know you and your process. Mm -hmm. So for me to for me to get it's like measuring a table with a ruler uh without any you know any 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 markings on it you might as well be measuring the ruler with the table yeah you i i don't know that you know i I talk to people about companies but like i I very rarely hear anyone focus on kind of long-term competitive advantages I, i i hear everyone talking about whatever short-term thing may happen or not happen. And from there, it's very hard to still figure out what is actually discounted in the price, right? So, you know, people may have concerns and like they're valid concerns and it's very hard to figure out what, what actually is in the price. Yeah. You know, I, I see there's many of stock, many stocks we follow where, you know, I think the earnings come out and they're great and the stock falls 10% and vice versa. So I think the earnings are horrific and the stock rises and, you know, it's very hard to figure out. And I don't know anyone else who has really figured it out in a meaningful way or, you know, the stock collapses at first and then the CEO says something on a conference call, it goes up or, or, you know, Microsoft just did that a couple of weeks ago. Um, So those are the challenges that I have, you know, kind of sourcing other people's opinions on, on things. I, I, I talk, you know, I talk to people about philosophy and research process and, 
and kind of different industries and, and things of that nature that that's interesting to me um and i i tend to you know we, we do talk to middle management i don't really talk to top management we, we do talk to sort of industry experts and people who work in companies um those are to me much more valuable much more interesting sources of ideas and of insight if you will yeah it's hard to hard to hard to disagree there. Um, last last question that I will ask you, and I ask every guest: If you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why? Um, probably Winston Churchill. I think that's kind of my that's a great answer. answer for that. Um, you know, because he you know he really had a lot of failures in his life, uh, especially during World War One. He he led this disastrous attack during World War One in Turkey. And then he kind of is sidelined politically, uh, but eventually he comes back from all that and then kind of, you know, leads the UK to, to ultimately to victory. Um, so I'd like to kind of learn from him and, you know, how do you keep your spirits up in the kind of these really dark days, both personally for him and then, you know, the, the country, where, where did he find that inner strength? I thought, I thought that's, that's really fascinating. Because you know, yeah. I'm I'm just like everybody else. I have good days and bad days, and some days feel feel really crappy, and some some days feel good. And so, I'm fascinated by people who have that mental resilience. Awesome. I think that's a tremendous answer. Uh, Winston Churchill is one of my favorite people. It'd be him and Theodore Roosevelt if I could if I could have dinner with two people. Um, Lucas, thanks so much for coming on the show. I I learned a ton. I learned about three three businesses. Um, and I, I learned how, uh, just unique your process is in systemizing a lot of the portfolio construction and taking a lot of the guesswork out, which in turn probably frees your mind up to think about businesses and to think about those long-term, um, competitive advantages. So thanks so much again for coming on the show and I wish you the best of luck for the rest of this year. Thank you, Brandon. And I look forward to hosting you at our offices when you come to us. This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive.